Thank you very much indeed. If my memory serves me right, when you renovated the back of the chapel, the first Sunday after you did that, you invited me to preach. <laughs> and then you renovate the main sanctuary and you invite me to preach. So anything else, just let me know, please. <laughs> and I'll tell you if I'm free. Let's open our Bibles to John's Gospel, chapter 5. I gather you're working your way through John's Gospel, and I've been given chapter 5, verses 1 to 15. So I've been living in this passage for the past couple of weeks, seeing what we can learn and what we can glean. John chapter 5 and verse 1. After this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there is in Jerusalem by the Sheep Gate a pool, which is called in Hebrew Bethesda, having five porches. In these lay a great multitude of sick people, blind, lame, paralyzed, waiting for the moving of the water. For an angel went down at a certain time into the pool and stirred up the water. Then whoever stepped in first, after the stirring of the water, was made well of whatever disease he had. Now a certain man was there who had an infirmity 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he already had been in that condition a long time, he said to him, Do you want to be made well? The sick man answered him, Sir, I have no man to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. But while I am coming, another steps down before me. Jesus said to him, Rise, take up your bed and walk. And immediately the man was made well. He took up his bed and walked. And that day was the Sabbath. But the Jews therefore said to him who was cured, If it is the Sabbath, it is not lawful for you to carry your bed. He answered them, He who made me well said to me, Take up your bed and walk. Then they asked him, Who is the man who said to you, Take up your bed and walk? But the one who was healed did not know who it was. But Jesus had withdrawn, a multitude being in that place. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, See you have been made well. Sin no more, lest a worse thing come upon you. The man departed and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had made him well. A number of years ago, my wife and I went down to Cambridge. We had a couple of days down there, but one of the reasons we went down there is because there was uh, an exhibition on the Antarctic. So we went around the exhibition and saw some incredible things, but the thing I've never forgotten is that there was Captain Scott's diary. The man who tried to get to the South Pole recorded a diary, and when his body was eventually discovered, so was the diary. And there it was on display. And I found it incredibly moving to, to read the handwriting of a man who is now world famous. In that diary, he uses a word which to me fits perfectly in John's Gospel, chapter 5. He described how he and his men were setting out for the South Pole, and as they got near to the South Pole, they saw something which was unfamiliar. It was black. He said, as we got nearer, we suddenly realized it was a black flag. We had been beaten. And Scott wrote in his diary, we have been forestalled. Somebody got there before us. 
remember a pastor telling me that there was a man in his congregation who was a draftsman, and he was given the assignment of trying to design a new aircraft. He spent 10 years working on it, not every day of his life, but he had a team of people working to design this new aircraft. And then it was submitted to the government, and another aircraft was chosen. He said, my church member had a nervous breakdown. He said, Pastor, I've worked for 10 years for nothing, and at the end, I have been forestalled. Somebody got there before me. I call it the Bethesda syndrome because that is what we have in this situation here of a man who'd been ill for 38 years, lying by a pool, and when he wanted to get in to get healed, somebody always got there before him. He had been forestalled. It's not an easy passage. Some people think the Apostle Paul is, is difficult to understand and the Gospels are a piece of cake. Believe me, the Gospels are very trying at times and very hard to understand. And here's a very incredible passage which certainly gives us one or two headings. But we'll have a look at it under six main headings. The first is what I've called the circumstances. John fits it in after the Lord Jesus had dealt with a lady who had a very doubtful reputation. She'd had many husbands and she was living with a man and Jesus exposed her sin and then brought her to faith. And after that, it was festival time. God gave the Jews seven festivals. The Jews then added another one called the Feast of Purim. And so the question is, which festival was it? Scholars love this kind of discussion and spend hours discussing which festival it was. Was it Passover? Was it Pentecost? Was it the Feast of Tabernacles? Was it Purim? The answer is, we don't know. We all have our personal feelings as to what it may be. We don't know. But festival time was holiday time. And so Jerusalem was packed. It was crumbed. People were milling around everywhere. And there was the Lord Jesus. But there's a problem. Where on earth is the pool of Bethesda? Do you know, for many years liberal scholars laughed at the Bible. Now, you may find this hard to believe, but I trained for ministry in a liberal college. And uh, finding people who believed the Bible was incredibly difficult, even in a college where people were training for ministry. And uh, almost like looking for an honest politician. But we won't go down that road. But anyway... You may find it hard to believe that there are people who studied the Bible and who love to laugh at it. And, and for many, many years, people said, we have no historical evidence that ever there was an area called Bethesda. And number two, there was a pool called Bethesda. And so this is one of these typical biblical stories that means nothing at all. That is until 130 years ago. By the Sheep Gate in Jerusalem, there's a church called St. Anne's. And they did exactly what you've just done. They looked around and said, nice building, but it's seen better days. We better refurbish it. We better spruce it up. And so they began to refurbish the church at St. Anne's. As they took it back to the plaster, they noticed on the wall was a mural. And it was of a pool with five arches and an angel reaching down and touching the water. People who knew their Bible said, this is John's Gospel, chapter 5. They got permission to start excavating, and as they dug around in the vicinity of the church, they excavated the pool of Bethesda. They had to shift 40 feet of rubbish 
It's amazing the kind of stuff that creeps into churches, but there again, they moved all that. And if you go to Jerusalem today, you can actually see the pool of Bethesda by the Sheep Gate. To even confirm that, in 1947, when the Dead Sea Scrolls were discovered, a wonderful, wonderful episode in and of itself. As, as people began to read through the scrolls, one copper scroll spoke of an area by the Sheep Gate called Bethesda. Do you know, I have discovered after reading God's word for nearly 50 years, I discovered this. When sometimes you don't understand what God's word is saying, you don't laugh. You put it in a box and said, Lord, when you're ready to tell me what it means, I'm waiting. Never laugh at God. Never laugh at his word. And so we know this literally took place by the sheep gate, by the pool of Bethesda. How interesting. But what about the crowd? Well, we're told that the crowd who gathered around this pool in the days of Jesus were, were sick. We know that there were arches there to provide a little bit of uh, shelter from the heat and from the shade. But by and large, the people who went there who were sick, why? This is where it gets a little bit tricky. We're told that this pool every now and then used to be moved. There was a ripple. And people believed that this was probably an angel who was touching the waters and that whoever got into the waters after the, the sort of troubling of the water by the angel would be healed. If you have a decent Bible and will look at the footnotes of the Bible, most decent translations of scripture will tell you that in the original text, the end of verse 3 and the whole of verse 4 is not there. It has been added. Let's just presume it has been added. The question is, where has it come from? Now that may kind of unsettle some people to say, there are one or two things in my Bible that really shouldn't be there. It's, it's not too catastrophic, but there are portions of God's word where you say, that is not really in all the original manuscripts. Where has it come from? Most scholars are of the opinion that the end of verse 3 and the beginning of verse 4 have come from some footnotes. Now, we're not unaware of these kind of things. Can I tell you about some modern-day footnotes that you maybe believe in more than Scripture? Have you heard of a man called Mr. Schofield? A man who took hold of a Bible and then put lots of footnotes in, and who hasn't been in a Bible study where people said, well, Mr. Schofield says, you think, who's he? Who's he? And then it gets even more nearer our times. There is the John MacArthur Bible. By the way, I'm just publishing one next week. It's the David Enshaw Bible. Nothing wrong with footnotes, but you know what happens? After a while, people take people's footnotes as authoritative. Mr. Schofield says this. John MacArthur says that. David Enshaw says this. I'm of Paul, and I'm of Cephas, and I'm of Apollos. Now, we've got to be very careful with our kind of footnotes, what we add on to Scripture. It almost seems that what we have here is someone trying to explain what was happening because it's very superstitious. And the evidence seems to me, and if I'm wrong, please forgive me. And I mean, it's been nice knowing you if this is the last time I'm going to preach here. But it would seem to me that there was kind of some moving of, of, of hot water underneath that troubled the waters. And folk thought, wow, this is supernatural. 
Now it was in our country maybe a hundred years ago, especially on the mainland. People took the waters. William and Catherine Booth, the founders of the Salvation Army, were always taking the waters. They were always going to Matlock in Derbyshire and Leamington Spa and, and, and Flangendor Wells in Wales. They're all, and Bath as well, Bath Spa, where you took the waters because they were, it was felt they were good for you. And then suddenly people realized, no, they're not good for you. Sea water's better. So people then started to go to the beaches. We almost have a kind of situation here that something was going on geographically, if I can put it like that, or geologically. And folks said, this must be supernatural. If we get in after an angel's been there, we can be healed. And this is what John is recording. And a man had been led there for 38 years. But by the way, think of the noise. Think of the scene, how squalid it was. Think of the stench, pretty repulsive. It wouldn't be eye candy to see all these people in this kind of situation. And here they were, desperate to be healed. I understand. When you're sick, you're desperate to feel well. Let me just say one or two practical things. Christianity is not built on superstition. Neither is it built on people's interpretations. It is built on the truth of what God has said. And I have discovered this, having been a Christian for many, many years and a pastor for 35 years, not too many of us can cope with the truth. So we soften it down with a bit of tradition, a bit of superstition. We're coming up to Christmas. Who dare really preach the truth of the Incarnation? So we soften it down with little bits of tradition and bits of nonsense in the hope that folk will buy into the bigger picture. It's everywhere when it comes to Christianity. Jesus said, I am the truth. And it's the church's job not to manufacture the truth or enhance the truth. It is to speak the truth and let the Holy Spirit of truth apply to people's hearts. And so here, without any doubt, there was something going on. There's a lot of superstition. We don't read of Jesus endorsing this. And the second thing that caught my eye was John spells out the condition of those who were gathered around the pool. He said some were blind. And some, he said, were lame. They could walk, but not well. And some were totally paralyzed. Don't forget, John wrote his gospel after 60 years of walking with Jesus. He had 60 years of thinking and 60 years of seeing the outworking of knowing the Lord Jesus. He was the last of the apostles to die. And, and therefore, John's gospel is full of lots of hidden nuances, which are very, very powerful. So he said, when it came to the Last Supper, Judas went out, and it was night. He's not just telling us what time of day it was. He was saying, when he walked out of the life of the Lord Jesus, he walked out into the night. And also, when you celebrate the Passover, you celebrate, celebrate the Passover inside the house. And when it came to the breaking of bread and the, and the drinking of the cup, Judas went outside the house. John's Gospel is full of those little things. And here he says, oh, by the way, there were people there who were blind. They couldn't see anything spiritually. There were people who were lame. They couldn't walk for God. And there were those who were absolutely paralyzed. Nothing could move them. They were totally without strength. 
And the wonderful thing about God's grace is this, that when we were blind and lame and paralyzed at a spiritual level, Paul says, when we were without strength, Christ died for us. He broke into our lives as he broke into the life of this man here. It's the most interesting scene. So here's the circumstances and here's the crowd. But here's the case. Here is one man who's singled out. He's been there for 38 years. What is amazing, I wrote this in my notes, he has been led by this pool longer than Jesus has been on the earth. And isn't it quite scary when sometimes you're giving an illustration to people, you suddenly realize they weren't born when you talk about the illustration you're giving them. I don't do it too often, but every now and then I speak about the troubles in Northern Ireland and people under 21 say, what troubles are those? But you live through them. You live through them, but time just goes quickly. But here's a man who'd been led there for 38 years, and when the water was troubled, he just couldn't get into the water. Jesus then asked a silly question. Do you want to be made better? Hang on a minute. What do you think I'm here for? You've been there for 38 years. W. E. Sangster tells a great illustration. He said a friend of his was marrying a couple in London. He said the couple weren't the brightest bulbs in the box, but they loved each other. And he took them through all the marriage classes and said, you know, on the big day, you stand here and you stand there, and I ask you certain questions, and you in response say this and say that. Right? Yes. So the big day arrived. The father of the bride let go of his daughter and said, yes, I give this woman to be married. So here were the couple. And Sansa said, his friend said to the man, do you take this woman to be your wife? And the man said, what do you think I'm here for? What a silly question. No, I just happened to wander into a church and thought, I'm here to get married. But you know, it's not so silly, is it? Do you want to be made better? You see, some people love being miserable, and it's being miserable that makes them happy. Some people love an illness, because it's an illness that makes them noticed in a crowd because they're always talking about it. Some people love a problem because it means they're always on people's radar and not forgotten. Do you really want to be better? Do you really want to get rid of that problem? Because if you do, you'll drop off people's radar. Oh, oh, it's nice to find my name in the sheet that folk are praying for me. And folk say, how's your problem? If this man is healed by Jesus, for the first time in 38 years, he's got to work for a living. Up until this time, people were giving him whatever they want out of their conscience. Oh, there's that man again. Just put a few shekels in. If this man is healed by Jesus, his life is going to be radically changed. Do you really want to be made well? And I say to you, do you really, really 
want to trust Jesus Christ? Because if you do, he'll change everything. When you really commit your life to Jesus Christ, believe me, he turns your life upside down. Nothing is ever the same again. And what is interesting about this character is this. We don't even know his name. He's nameless. He's certainly friendless, Billy Nomates. Why is that? Because when the waters were moved, whatever the cause of the moving of the waters, there was nobody to put in. Put him in. Not one friend. He's certainly helpless because he can't do it himself. And he's absolutely hopeless. If you've been there for 38 years, I don't mean to be rude, but I can't see much changing. In fact, if nothing has happened after 38 years, I really don't know why you're led here. And here's the fourth thing. Into this situation comes the Christ. Into this situation walks the Lord Jesus. And amazingly, when this man says, yes, I, I, I really want to be healed, no messing around. Get up. Pick up that mat. And go home. No ten weeks on Christianity explored. Get up, roll up your mat, and go home. That's pretty powerful, isn't it? When the Lord Jesus steps into our life, believe me, there's no messing around. He could have thought, get up. What do you mean, get up? I can't get up. Been here for 38 years. Roll up my mat. I can't get off my mat. How can I roll it up? Go home. Why do I want to go home? There are some things here that we find quite interesting. Number one is this. If this place was packed out with people, why did Jesus not go around the whole pool and say, get up, eyes opened, leprosy be gone, just all go home? Why did he do all that? Why just one? If there's one doctrine I struggle with, and I think you probably struggle with it as well. I struggle with the sovereignty of God. I don't understand God. Mr. Spurgeon said, Men love God everywhere except on the throne. And it's one thing saying, you know, He is Lord. I believe in the Lordship of Jesus. But understanding that lordship worked out on the ground is not easy to understand. And I don't understand why sometimes God moves in that person's life, but not in that person's life. I, I, I recently buried a friend of mine. She was 55. We were in school together. When she was in school, we were in the same assembly room. And I, I knew her brother. Her brother was in my class. And then you leave school. I went to secondary school. She went to another secondary school. Then she became a Christian. And then it's been downhill ever since. Terrible marriage. Children not interested in the gospel. And then she's diagnosed with throat cancer. Lord... I have a man in my congregation who's a hundred and two. A hundred and two. 
and wants to go home. And I had a friend who's 55 and has gone home. Lloyd, could you kindly explain that to me? Why? Why? I know not how the Spirit moves convincing men of sin. And one of the things we have to acknowledge is the sovereignty of God and acknowledge that he is Lord. I don't know why, but only one person is singled out. But also there's something else very powerful here. This man was transformed by the word of Christ. Get up and roll up and go home. And isn't it amazing, a man who couldn't move to get into the water for 38 years, he couldn't move, he suddenly jumps up, rolls up his mat, and goes home. How could he do that? I'll tell you how he could do it. When the Lord speaks personally into your life, he speaks with power. And when the word of Christ gets into your heart, you can do nothing but obey it. That's why when Jesus spoke to demons, out, they had to go. In fact, that's the very word that we find in John's Gospel a little later on in chapter 11, when Jesus spoke to Lazarus at the tomb. He literally, the Greek is very powerful. Lazarus, out. And when he said it, he had to get out of the tomb. Couldn't say, hang on a minute, Lord, I'm busy. I'm enjoying the afterlife. Out! And he came out. What is it Charles Wesley wrote? He speaks, and listening to his voice, new life the dead receive. Jesus Christ is powerful. And when his word gets into your heart, you have to obey. So this man who couldn't walk jumps up. Could you imagine the hush that came upon the place? He's rolling up his mat. And then he goes. And then the third thing is this, have you noticed? He told him to burn his boats. Lord, I haven't walked for 38 years. Before I roll up my mat, can I have a practice run? Just see how the walking goes. When God moves in your life, he also wants you to burn boats. When Julius Caesar landed on our shores, the first thing he ordered his sailors to do was to burn the boats. He said, the only way we're going home is if we conquer these people and build fresh boats. If you are going to fight thinking the boat is here to take me back to Italy, you won't fight. So let's burn the boats and then let's conquer these Brits. If you look at the emblem of Australia, it has an ostrich and a kangaroo. And neither an ostrich or a kangaroo can go backwards. So if you stand behind them, you're safe. And the idea is Aussies never go backwards. Well, tell that after a game of rugby. And when Jesus Christ steps into your life, he not only speaks powerfully, he says, burn your boats. There's no turning back. When Christ calls a man or a woman, 
he bids them come and die. Die to self, but live for him. But why would anyone want to go backwards anyway when you've met the man who has changed your life? And so we then fifthly come to the cure. Here's this man who hasn't walked for 38 years. You know how it is when you have the flu? You struggle to get out of bed after a week. You're wobbly. Just give me some soup so I can cope with. And you get on your feet. This man hadn't walked for 38 years. What were the state of his muscles? Yes, but when Christ speaks into your life, he sorts those kind of things out. And so he picks it up. Notice that his, his healing was free. It didn't cost a penny. But you know, whatever God does is free, but it's not cheap. The reason why it's free is because he pays the bill. And it was also immediate, there and then. Remember the hymn? That moment from Jesus, a pardon receives. I've discovered this when God works in your life, it is always free, and there's always immediate evidence that he's beginning to work. But also when God works, it's permanent. Paul said, if any person be in Christ, they are a new creation. And also whatever God does is evident. Can you imagine? He could have said to the man, go home, leave your mat here for the next block. But no, take your mat with you. Maybe it was plastic, I don't know. But take your mat with you. Why is that? Because if you've been living in a close community as Jerusalem was in those days, you've been lying in the same place, you know, round the pool, waiting to be healed and nothing's happened. People know who you are. And suddenly you're walking around with your mat. What's happened to you? Look at the mat, this is my testimony. Used to lie on this, I'm carrying it now. And this man walks around Jerusalem a living testimony, with a testimony, of what God has done in his life. And surely all of us in some shape or form have a mat to say, I would like this once, but this is now me. Jesus has met me. Here's just a couple of little things, by the way, that you can almost see John slips in. Where was Bethesda? By the sheep gate. Why does he tell us that? Is it any relevance to us? Oh yes. The sheep gate was right next to the temple. It's the main entrance where Fort went to go into the temple. And it's John's way of saying, this man lay right next to the heart of the spiritual hub of Jerusalem and it could do nothing for him. Think of the thousands of priests and of Levites and temple servers who went in and out on a weekly basis and this man was untouched by them. It's John's way of saying religion does nothing to change people. Oh, and by the way, he was there for 38 years. If you read your Old Testament carefully, how long did the children of Israel wander in the wilderness? 38 years. Just living in a wilderness. And John is almost saying in his very clever apostolic way, this man led here 
is almost like our nation, right next to religion, but living in a wilderness, paralyzed. How we need Jesus. And then the critics. Here's the final point. Jesus performed seven miracles on the Sabbath. One gets the impression he was almost being slightly provocative. Why? Because the Sabbath was a very special day to the Jews. They'd made it into what it shouldn't have been, but it was still very special, special to them. So, so you imagine, you are walking through Jerusalem with a mat on the Sabbath. You would stick out like a sore thumb. Let me illustrate it in a more personal way. The chapel that I pastored, we've just literally renovated. You got the idea from us, and I know it is, but uh, we, we've just renovated the whole chapel and uh, ripped all the pews out, put underfloor heating in, spotlights, the lot. Everything's improved apart from the preaching. I forgot to say to the decorators, we don't want you to paint on Sunday. So imagine I turned up one Sunday we were meeting in the overflow. There's the decorator up a ladder. Sunday morning. What do I say to the elders? What do I say to the deacons? What do I say to the congregation? I said, do me a favor. I'll explain later. Come down that ladder and go home before any member sees you. Why? Pastor, do you condone a company painting on the Lord's Day? And furthermore, he hasn't got a tie. You can imagine 2,000 years ago, a man walking through Jerusalem with a mat on his shoulder. Excuse me, brother, it's the Lord's Day. Why are you carrying that mat? Well, you know, I was sick once. But Jesus, well, he didn't know at the time, but I'd been made whole. Who's made you whole? I don't know. Someone spoke powerfully into my life. Later on, he discovered it was the Lord Jesus. Right throughout John's Gospel, you keep reading of the Jews. The Jews. The Jews said, why are you doing that? The Jews said, what are you doing here? It occurs nearly 70 times in John's Gospel. Who are the Jews? It's John's way of saying these orthodox people who know nothing of life. They're religious but they know nothing of life. And I've discovered it's possible to be a 21st century Jew. You're religious, you are orthodox, but you know nothing of the life of the Lord Jesus. My dear friends, Jesus did not come into the world to make us religious. He came to give us life. And what is life? It is to know him personally. And suddenly this man realized, I, I now know the man who gave me life. It's Jesus. And then Jesus said something in closing, which is very powerful. He said, sin no more, lest a worst thing come upon you. Ah, people say, he must have been doing something in private 
that led to his disability and his sin found him out. No, 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 that's not what the prophet is saying. Jesus was saying to him, very, very powerfully, to be saved from a physical disability is one thing, but I'm telling you, sin no more because there's something worse than this, and that is eternal judgment. So he's walking around Jerusalem saying, I'm totally healed. If you're living a life that is contrary to the things of God, sin no more. There's something worse than a physical disability come on you. You enter into eternity totally lost. What about you? If truth were known, we all have our own pool of Bethesda. Something we lie around that makes us feel comfortable. But it's not real. There's a bit of truth in it, a bit of superstition, but it's, it's my story. And I find that when I witness to people in the 21st century, you, you ask them to explain what they believe. And when, you ex when they explain it, you say, but, but that's not rational. There's no evidence. Yeah, but it means a lot to me. Well, it may mean a lot to you, but it's meaningless. What's your Bethesda that you led around? And with biblical authority, I say to you this morning, Jesus Christ comes to you and says, get up, get up, and roll up your mat, and come and follow me. And the thing that Jesus asks us to do is to follow him, not to become a Baptist, or a Brethren, or a Pentecostal, or a Charismatic, or a Roman Catholic, or an Orthodox. He says, follow me. And a Christian is a person who is in love with the man who has changed their life. And to know him is to know eternal. He says, follow me. But my dear friends, judging by the state of our world and our country, I think of the words of Simon Peter, where Simon looked at the challenge of following Jesus Christ and said, Lord, I've thought many a time, where can I go? But he said, I only know that you have the words of eternal life. So why go anywhere else? And I tell you quite frankly, picking up your bed and walking around with it is sometimes not easy. Sometimes it gets you into trouble. But I'd rather get in trouble for following Jesus than still led by the pool of Bethesda, just wallowing but going nowhere fast. I say to you, in the name of Jesus Christ, this morning, get up. What does that mean? Get up. Stand up. Acknowledge you've been wrong. Ask that the power of Christ will come into your life. Get up. Roll up your mat. Forget your past. And say, Lord Jesus, I'm a clue what the future holds. In fact, I hardly know your name. But from now on, I want to be a follower. As a 14-year-old boy, I knelt by my bed. 14. I tell you quite honestly, number one, I really hadn't a clue who I was committing my life to. I did. I knew he was Jesus. I knew he was the Savior of the world. But I hardly knew a thing. And I certainly hadn't got the faintest idea where he was going to lead me. But at 14, I said, Lord Jesus, I'm here. 
Where do you want me to go? And I say to you this morning, get up. Get up. Roll up. And follow him. And the more you follow, the more you discover who it is who has called you to be his saviour. Who else do you want to follow? Who else? Dare I say it? Do you really want to put all your trust in Boris Johnson? Really? How about Jeremy Corbyn? How about Arlene Foster? How about Mr. Juncker? How about Donald Trump? How about Vladimir Putin? Who is it to trust? You alone have the power and the words of eternal life. Lord Jesus, take me, fill me, and use me for the glory of your name. And people say Christianity is boring. Don't believe it. Jesus is life. Eternal life. Heavenly Father, we all find ourselves, if we're honest, by our own little pool. It's not ideal, but we feel comfortable. Wish it would change. We give you thanks, the Lord Jesus isn't just interested in giving us a new mat, but in giving us a new life. Father, I pray that each one of us this morning may hear the word of Christ, get up. Father, speak powerfully into people's lives that what they cannot do themselves by your Holy Spirit, you may let them get up. Lift them up. Father, give them the strength to roll up the mat, to say, old days are gone, and now here I am, following in the footsteps of Jesus. Father, if I've been wrong on anything, wash it out of people's minds. But what is of you? Seal it by your Holy Spirit, through Christ our Lord.